Well, it's New Year's Eve, and I think uh, it's appropriate that we think a little bit about the year that's gone by and the year that's ahead, and think about where we find hope. We've been talking about hope in services for the last month, I think, and uh, this is going to continue that. But focusing on this passage uh, crystallizes our issues a little bit bit differently perhaps uh, I think you'd have to agree with me it's been a rough year Jim Bankson said that last week in his testimony good riddance to 2017 uh, you know we started it with the inauguration of President Trump and regardless of your politics whether you think he's a terrific president or a horrible president and there doesn't seem to be a lot of middle ground on that question uh, you know I think you'll agree with me that it's been a stressful year just in terms of the, the rancor and the division, the, the opposition within our own nation, you know, I, it, it feels kind of horrible to me how angry people are with each other. You know, I grew up, and most of you grew up in a society that was fearful of the Russians and maybe the Chinese. And it seems like we're more fearful of each other that, you know, Red fears blue, and blue fears, fears red. And as we look ahead to 2018, is that going to get better? How is it going to get better? Where's our hope in that? And then, of course, we had the firestorm, and I don't have to tell you at all what a dreadful, catastrophic, frightening, troubling event that was. And now we're entering a new year, and we're starting to... It's starting to come home that this is not going to just go away. The, the recovery is going to be long and difficult. And is that going to get better? When is it going to get better? How is it going to get better? I think to some extent we may never be able to really regroup everything that was lost in that fire. So where's the hope? What, what gives you hope as you approach 2018? And then, you know, we all have personal things that also play into this, some good and some bad. Personally, I lost some very close friends in this last year. And that was hard. And as I'm 67 years old, I don't see that trend getting better as the year's getting, you know, is it? <laughs> you tell me. So, you know, there are reasons to ask ourselves, why are we uh, hopeful? Where is our hope going to be? And I think this passage gives us a chance to really think about that. Uh, in a deeper way because truthfully this is one of the parts of scripture where there's not a lot of hope glaringly obvious in the story as it's told so I the title of the sermon is when the wise men have gone up to this point things are looking you know relatively good for Joseph and Mary and their baby first of all they're married they wanted to be married to each other they're in a new place apparently they've been there long enough that Joseph, who's kind of a fix-it man, has been able to establish work and supply for his family. They must have found a place to live. And, and uh, then, uh, you know, these wise men show up. And I don't know about the frankincense and myrrh, but I think the gold was probably welcome in a poor family. That was pretty good. But then they left, and, and Joseph gets this phone call in the middle of the night. Uh, get up, get out. Your life is in danger. When I read that, I got a little jolt. Did you? I mean, 
we've had some experience of that. We kind of know what that feels like to be told, get out now, your life is in danger. And that's what happened with Joseph and Mary and their, their little toddler. They had to get out in the middle of the night, no time to say goodbye, no time to pack properly. And they're on the road to, to Egypt, a long journey where they uh, are going to be refugees. They, have, they don't know the language. Joseph doesn't know where he's going to find work or whether there'll be work, where will they shelter. They don't have friends and family there. And they don't know what the future looks like, except that the angel has told them, I'll let you know when you can come back. And then they do come back, and that looks good. You know, the, Herod has died. But when they get back, did you notice? They find out it isn't really as safe as we thought it would be. We want to go back to Bethlehem where we've established a life. But we can't because Herod may be dead, but his son, who's also a bloodthirsty tyrant, is on the throne. And you know what? If you're the only male five-year-old in the preschool, you look kind of obvious. And that's what would have been in Bethlehem. All the baby boys were killed of Jesus' age. There's no little boys in that village of his age. So they decide to go to Nazareth, which is a little farther from Jerusalem, and where the events of Bethlehem are not so obvious. So where is Joseph's hope as he looks forward? And where is Mary's hope as they look forward? And interestingly enough, of course, the story is a long story, and we're just reading a bit of it. But even in this, Matthew, in a rather sneaky way, injects hope. And he does it through prophecy, by mentioning two prophecies that, uh, that he says were fulfilled, or are being fulfilled in Jesus. Now, it's a little tricky to understand this, because when we hear prophecy, we think of prediction. We think if I prophesy rain on Wednesday, it better rain on Wednesday. That's what a prophecy is. It predicts the future and it either comes true or it doesn't come true. But if you look at these two prophecies that I want to look at this morning, neither of them has any predictive quality at all. And yet, Matthew says they were fulfilled in this. The first one is regarding Jesus being taken by his parents to Egypt. And the... Uh, well, Matthew says, uh, So was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that's not a prediction, is it? What it is is part of a long... If you look back, it's from Hosea, chapter 11. If you want to look at that, uh, chapter 11 is a kind of a long soliloquy in the voice of God about his inner torment over the nation of Israel, that he loves them so much and they keep rejecting him, turning their backs on him, going in other directions. And he, would, he should just give up on them, but he can't. He says, how can I give you up, O Israel? Because I love you so much. And it's in that context he says this word, out of Egypt I called my son. And he's referring back to one of the great events of history. So, just to keep your timeline straight, hundreds of years before Jesus' time is Hosea as a prophet speaking into a really difficult time in Israel's history. And he's referring hundreds of years before his time 
to the Exodus, when God took his people who were, a slave, who were slaves in Egypt and led them to the promised land, through the wilderness, to the promised land, to make a new beginning, a new nation. That great event is what Hosea is referring to here and Matthew picks up, that God not only called his people out of slavery, rescuing them, he did it in this, with this sense of family. I called my son. He refers to Israel as my son, my child, my beloved, precious possession. That's the kind of God who's told all through the Bible. And here's Matthew picking that up and saying, in a strange way, that word from Hosea and that event from Moses' day are being brought into fulfillment through Jesus. Just the fact that in this odd circumstance, he's going to come out of Egypt and that he will be not just called my son as Israel is, but he is actually the son of God. Somehow this story that God has been telling us all through the centuries is coming to a focus, a focal point in Jesus. There's something there, Matthew's telling us, that's bigger than just the events that were happening in Bethlehem and in Egypt. And then the second <clears throat> reference, the second prophetic reference regarding the slaughter of the innocents, as it's called, you know, the, this, this murder of babies and children in Bethlehem has caught the attention of artists throughout the centuries. And it's, it's, it, you'll see it many times in paintings, just the, the imagination of what it was like for these soldiers to come in and heartlessly slaughter tiny children. And it's, they will, it'll be titled, inevitably, The Slaughter of the Innocents. Well, Jeremiah says then, he's speaking of that, he says, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I find that really incredibly heartrendingly beautiful poetry. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, what's going on there? Matthew is referring to Jeremiah. Jeremiah spoke at the time of the Babylonian exile. And that was a terrible time in Israel's history where the fierce Babylonian army gathered together the people of Israel in concentration camps and sent them on a forced march en masse to, across the desert to Babylon to be in exile forever. And you know what happens when people are gathered in concentration camps and sent on forced marches. Who suffers the most? The children always suffer the most. The children die. Babies die. They're dying in Syria today. They've been dying for years because warfare has thrust them from their homes and they're hungry and they're cold and children die. And so that's what Jeremiah is referring to. He's saying, in that event, I hear a voice, a voice of crying, a voice of misery. It's the voice of Rachel weeping for her children. Now, who is Rachel? 
Oh, once again, we're doing the timeline thing. So Jeremiah is hundreds of years before Jesus, and hundreds of years before Jeremiah is Rachel. And that's even before the Exodus, hundreds of years before the Exodus. We're going back to the very roots of the nation of Israel. Rachel was the, mother, was the wife of Jacob and the mother of some of the first 12 tribes of Israel. She's one of the mothers of Israel. Now, there's no record of Rachel ever crying over children in the Bible. Rachel's crying about these children. And her voice is heard centuries later saying, those are my children. Those are my children who are dying. And Matthew picks that up and says, in Jesus' day in Bethlehem, Rachel's voice is still crying out. Those are my children. And she can't be comforted. And what Matthew's pointing out is, again, there's a continuity, a thread throughout history. These are not just events of a religious leader in a backwater of the Middle East who did some certain activities. This story is not just about a couple of decades in the life of a Jew in Palestine. This story is about the history of the world from the beginning. It's about what God has been doing over the centuries and what he will still do, what he still intends to do. And in that story, there is mourning, there is weeping, but it's weeping that draws all God's people together in one family. Those are my children. So, what, what Matthew's saying is there's something going on here that's a bigger story. It's not just about you, but you can be part of this story. And in that, you can find your hope. The long history of Israel, he's saying, the long history of the world is being fulfilled, filled up, filled up by the events of Jesus and it has a great ending because the promise of, promises of God are great. So that's what Joseph's hope is as he goes on that long journey with his toddler into Egypt. He knows what, that he trusts and believes that God is about something great. He doesn't know what it is and in fact we don't think he ever got to see the culmination of it because his name dies out of the story after Jesus begins his ministry. There's no more mention of Joseph as being alive. So we think he probably died when Jesus was still a boy. But he knew what his hope was. He knew what his hope was, and he wants us to have that hope. And that's what I want to say to you this morning, is that our hope, as we look into some of the bleakness of our lives and the bleakness of our world is our hope is in this, is in story. Not just that there is a story, but that we become attached to that story. We become part of that story. It becomes our story. Now I want to talk a little bit about story in a more general sense, because stories are very powerful in our lives, and there are lots of different kinds of stories, and I want to point out to you some of the ways that <coughs> stories influence you. One is family stories. Most of us have family stories, whether we know it or not. Now, I'm, I'll tell you a little bit of mine. 
I was brought up in a family where that was very proud of the fact that my maternal grandfather was Scottish. Anybody say amen? Yeah. So I knew as a boy that Scott, I was a Scottish boy. You know, my name is Stafford, which is a rather English name. Didn't matter. I was a Scottish boy. And I was, I, Scottish boys are strong. And they are tough. And they don't mind cold weather. And they are thrifty. And they are enterprising. And you can't get them down for long. You know, everybody knows that, right? I knew that. That was kind of part of who I was. And that, that in a sense gave me hope when I was facing adversity because I knew what I was made out of. I knew what my ancestors were made of. Now, everybody has a story. That, you know, there's a story of people who came over on a boat from Vietnam and came here and arrived with nothing and built a business and established their lives and sent their kids to college. That's a story that can invigorate them and give them hope and give those children hope. Some of us have stories where we, we know that our grandparents went through the Depression and they were really poor. But they, they came west and landed in California and they were delighted to find you could pick oranges off the tree and they managed to survive and they made a life for themselves and they learned that they were tough. And their children know that story, and that story informs their, their lives. There are all kinds of family stories that give us identity and give us hope. There are also national stories, and in America we have a great national story that inspires us and gives us hope, and it's giving us hope now, whether we realize it or not. I've been thinking about this in the life of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln, because Abraham Lincoln faced surely the worst time in America's history. Think about him standing at Gettysburg. Gettysburg, to give his great address, what was so great about it? Well, what was so great about it was that he was addressing this horrible, horrible crisis in America, where he's standing in the cemetery where thousands and thousands of American boys have murdered each other, and they're buried on that very ground. And he's trying to find a way not just to celebrate the victory of the Union troops. He doesn't actually celebrate that at all. But he wants to find a way to draw this nation together. He, there's, they're fighting to save the Union. They don't want it to be destroyed in division. And, and, and how does he do that? He tells the story of America in very simple form. 87 years ago, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now, everybody, north or south, blue or gray, knows that that is true about the kind of nation that was established. And that's the kind of nation he's saying we can be drawn together, not as victors and defeated, not as blue and gray, but as Americans who believe in this proposition that all men are created equal. And he uses that story to draw the future America into one nation again. So that's hope in a story. But you know, the greatest hope, the greatest story, is our story, the Christian story. It is this marvelous story that we've just touched on. Matthew wants his readers 
all through Matthew, you know, he quotes these prophecies many times in his scriptures, in his book. He wants them to get that this is a story that God has been telling for a long time. And it's going to go through their lives and beyond their lives. And it's going to end in glory. Because God is the master of history. History is not just one damn thing after another. History is going somewhere. And it's going there under God's direction. He knows what's going. But we have to know the story. And that's what Matthew would like us to do, is to know the story. And I think one of the tragedies of our time is that many Christians don't really know the story. The story is here in this book. It's, it is a story. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an ending. It's a continuous thread of narrative that's tied together in multiple ways. And as we've even heard this morning, there are interesting echoes and repetitions and, and, and so, sort of care, uh, the continuity of the people of God going through sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes traitors to God, sometimes loyal and obedient. But there is continuity in that story. A lot of people, unfortunately, have, have, have not learned the story, and so they think this is a patchwork in which there are some inspirational verses and a few great stories like Daniel in the lion's den, a few things they know, all kind of patched together and held together by some kind of difficult stuff like Leviticus and Ecclesiastes and don't really know what it's there for, and it's certainly hard to read. But I want to tell you, it is a story. And if I were to summarize what's the, what's the basic plot of the story, it's that God looks on a world that's bleeding and broken, and he says, I'm going to set it right. And this is how he does it. This tells how he does it. How he does it with us, for us, and through us. This is the story of God setting the world right. And it's a great story. But it's not the easiest story to get. Because it's an ancient book. It's divided into many different sections that have different styles. You know, it's, you have to learn it by studying it. Just like anything else you learn in school. If anything is important, you know you have to study it. And it's going to take some work. And I'm going to tell you, just frankly, it isn't a picnic. It requires some work. So I want to tell you what your New Year's resolution should be. <laughs> if you know this story, dedicate yourself to knowing it better and really understanding where your part in the story is, how you fit. If you don't know this story, if it really is just a patchwork to you, dedicate yourself to starting to learn it starting to learn it. And there are so many great resources available. There are videos, there are books, there are commentaries, there are reading plans. And our pastors and our staff of this church and our elders would be so delighted to help you find something that fits your schedule and fits what your level is. But start, because it will pay great dividends. And the dividends will be in hope you'll be able to face a world that is difficult and dreary sometimes 
and yet maintain hope. And hope is what motivates us to live the lives that we're meant to live. Without hope, it's hard to do. But with hope, we can do it. And we will do it with God's help. Amen.